We're in the Gospel of John. They're John 16, 29 through 33. I'm reading from the New American Standard. His disciples said, Lo, now you're speaking plainly and are not using a figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things and have no need for anyone to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, an hour is coming and has already come for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, were it anyone else that said such a thing, how ridiculous it would be. Take courage, I've overcome the world. Who else could say that but the Son of the living God? It would just be ridiculous. But with Him, it's not ridiculous. With Him, it is life-giving, courage-building, and hope-giving, Father. Father, we take so many great things from the words of our Lord, who is the living Word of God. Help us today to come to know Him more truly as He is, to believe more as we ought, Lord, and to take more confidence and courage from him, from his word and from his work. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, brother. Good morning. I appreciate you all getting in here in a timely manner. This is, uh, after all, the last words of Jesus before he went to the cross, the last words to his disciples. This passage is incredibly important. If the Son of God assigned to you the single most important task in the world, and then He convinced you that you did not have the understanding or the faith or the courage to pull that task off, would that give you peace? And if He then told you that in spite of those grievous shortcomings, you would have to do the task anyway, and you would encounter very great tribulation in doing it. You would be opposed by the most fierce opponents that exist in the world, and they would oppose you all the way to your last breath. Would that give you courage to dive into that task? That is, in fact, the scenario that we find here in Jesus' final words to His disciples. Beloved, there is a simple truth about us, about you and me, that we have to know in order for us to lay hold of the promise that guarantees the success of our assignment. And in the midst of doing that assignment, we have to know this thing about ourselves in order to actually have courage and peace in doing it. We have to know that we lack everything that is required to do the assignment. In ourselves, we have none of it. We have nothing to bring to the table. In the last five verses of John 16, we find, again, the very last words of Jesus on the night that he was arrested, the last words to his disciples before he turns his attention to his father in chapter 17 in the, in the most amazing prayer you'll ever find anywhere. 
These verses are so important, I don't even know where I would start if I was responsible to convince you of their importance, but fortunately, I'm not. That's the Holy Spirit's job, so I will leave that to Him. What we find here is not what these men wanted to hear, but it is what they needed to hear. And it's what you and I need to hear. In these last words, Jesus does two critically important things for these men whom He loved to the uttermost. First, He humiliates them. And then He gives them a promise. And the humiliation is inextricably tied to the promise. Both would be utterly indispensable for the work that Christ was going to accomplish through these 11 men after he departed this earth and returned to his Father. Both the humiliation and the promise go to the very heart of what it means to actually follow Jesus. In the verses just before these, Jesus told his disciples that an hour was coming when he would speak no more to them in figurative language, but he would tell them plainly of the Father. And yet again, he made it clear to them that that would not happen until he went back to the Father, until he left this earth, to which he had come very briefly, and went back to his place of eternal glory at his Father's side. Earlier in this chapter, Jesus declared that when the Holy Spirit came to indwell these men, He would take all the things that belong to the Father and the Son and He would disclose those things to them. That plain revelation of the Father and the Son would not come to these men until Jesus left, until He until He went and sent, until He went back to His Father's glory and sent the Holy Spirit to dwell in His people, starting with these men. I find it kind of amusing that upon hearing these words, the disciples immediately declared that the day Jesus was talking about was right then. It had already happened. They said, okay, Lord, now you are speaking plainly and you're not using figurative language. Now we know that you know all things and you have no need for anyone to question you. By this, we believe that you came from God. See, they're saying, okay, Lord, now we get it. Now you're talking our language. Now we're on board. We're ready to go. But Jesus' response to their confident assertion about the quality of their own understanding and the quality of their own faith yet again gave them a serious case of spiritual whiplash. He said to them, oh, so now you believe. And then he proceeded to give them a very near-term prophecy about what they were just about to do that very night. He told them they were going to abandon him. They were going to scatter to their own homes just as the prophet Zechariah had foretold hundreds of years before when he wrote, Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered. Jesus told these men that the only reason he would not be left completely alone in his hour of unspeakable humiliation and suffering and death 
was because his father would be with him, not because these 11 men would be with him. They would be gone. Like Peter at the beginning of this same discourse, all of these men were convinced that they had what it took to do what Jesus was expecting of them. In fact, they were arguing that very night about which one of them was most worthy to sit at his right hand. But Jesus told them that was not how this was going to work. See, Jesus never had any intention of basing the advancement of his kingdom on the understanding or the faith or the faithfulness of these men or of any other man or woman. They needed to know that, and so do we. Over and over throughout his earthly ministry, and especially here on the eve of his death, Jesus spelled out the roles so there would be no question about who was going to do what. And for these men, that clarification of roles demanded their humiliation. He had been clarifying roles all along by relentlessly hammering away at the disciples' pride ever since, ever since he called each one of them to him. There's an amazingly consistent pattern in Jesus' interaction with his disciples. And it's a pattern of shaming, not of praising. At the beginning of this same final address to his disciples before his death, Jesus took up a towel and he stooped down on the ground to wash his disciples' feet. And Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. And Jesus said to him, in effect, Peter, you're not getting this at all. If I do not wash you, you have nothing to do with me. At the end of that same chapter, John 13, when Jesus told the disciples they could not yet go where he was about to go, Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? Notice he doesn't say we. Why can I not follow you right now? I'll lay down my life for you. And Jesus said, oh really? Will you lay down your life for me? Now here's what's going to happen, Peter. A cock shall not crow until you deny me three times. In John 14, Jesus said to the disciples, I go to prepare a place for you. I'll come come again, I'll receive you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. And Thomas said, Actually, Lord, we don't. He said, Lord, we don't know the way. How could we possibly know how to get there? And Jesus said, in effect, Thomas, you're not getting this. You don't even know what you know. See, you do know the way because I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. And just a few verses later in that same chapter, we find this interaction between Philip and Jesus. Jesus said, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. And Philip says, in effect, Lord, I think you got this wrong. We really don't know the father. So if you'll just show us the father, then we'll be where we need to be. In effect, Jesus' response was, Philip, you're not getting this. 
Have I been with you so long and yet you have not come to know me? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, show us the Father? Luke's Gospel tells us that earlier that same evening, right after the very first Lord's Supper, the disciples were disputing about which which of them would be greatest in his kingdom. You know why they were doing that? They didn't get it. If we go back to earlier episodes between Jesus and his disciples, we see the same pattern. Matthew 14, the disciples were on a boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. The wind and the waves kicked up. The disciples saw Jesus walking toward them and they thought it was a ghost and they cried out with fear. And Jesus said, take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter said, okay, if it's you, then command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. And Peter stepped out of the boat and he was walking on the surface of the water just like Jesus. And then he noticed the wind and he sank. And as he went down, he said, Lord, save me. And Jesus reached out and pulled him up, saved him, put him back in the boat. And Jesus said to him, oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? In Matthew 16, Jesus was talking about the leaven of the Pharisees and the guys got it all wrong. And he said, you men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? I just gave bread to 5,000 people and then I gave it again to 4,000 people, starting with next to nothing. You're not getting this. Later in the same chapter, Jesus was showing his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and be killed and be raised on the third day. And what did Peter say? God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. So what did Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me for you are not setting your mind on God's interests but on man's. In Luke chapter 8, the disciples were again on a boat in a fierce storm. Jesus was asleep, and so they awakened him. And Jesus calmed the storm, and he said to them, Where is your faith? See, there's a pattern here. I hope you're seeing the pattern. Time after time, Jesus' own disciples missed the point. Time after time, they grossly overestimated their own understanding, their own faith, and their own faithfulness. And time after time after time, Jesus was quick to point out to them their grievous shortcomings on all three fronts. He pointed out the failure of their understanding, the failure of their faith, and the failure of their faithfulness. And when you and I realize that Jesus wasn't just talking to these 11 men, he was talking to us too. It's amazing how quickly we jump to the wrong solution to this very great problem. Jesus points out the feebleness of our understanding, so we resolve to fix our understanding. He points out the littleness of our faith, so we resolve to have bigger faith. He points out the failure of our courage, and so we conclude that the solution is that we need to be more courageous. But you know what what Jesus never said to these men? He never said, 
you guys go and get your act together. And when you do, then come back and talk to me. And maybe then you can be my ambassadors on this earth. Maybe then I'll use you to advance my kingdom. He never said that. Even on the night of his death, what did he say to them? He said, you're not getting it. Beloved, every single time we look at Christ's expectation of us and then hear his assessment of us, that leaves us humiliated. It leaves us painfully aware of our inability and insufficiency to do what he requires of us. And when you add to that the impossible nature of the assignment, that one-two punch leaves us with our mouths closed because we have nothing to bring to the table. And brothers and sisters, when God closes our mouths, that is when the stage is set for us to be powerfully used by Him. Here at the end of these last words to His disciples before His death, I believe Jesus very purposely set these men up for one last very painful humiliation that would be would be right in their faces that night, later that night. Why did he do that? To humble them. See, the wonderful thing about God's humiliation of us is it humbles us. And humility before God is the foundation of everything in the Christian life. When we stop thinking that it's about us and we start reckoning as true that it's all about Him, that's when things start to happen. In fact, the abandonment of Jesus by these men that same night, I believe, was as purposeful and predetermined on God's part as anything He ever did through them after that night. And that was because it was absolutely imperative that they have the roles straight. Now, I am not saying Jesus made these men sin. I'm not saying He made them walk away from Him that night. I'm not saying He made Peter deny Him three times. See, God does not tempt anyone. But but guys, all it takes for God to show us the depravity of our own hearts put into action is for Him to leave us to our own devices for a couple of minutes. It's not hard for God to show us what we're made of. All He has to do is just back off on the enablement. Back off on His power in us. And what happens? If He leaves us to our own devices, it doesn't take any time at all for us to show up. To show what's, what's really going on in here. By the way, that's why prayer is so insanely important in the Christian life. Because prayer is dependence on God. Do you ever wonder why Peter goofed up most often and most enthusiastically among all the disciples? You think maybe it had something to do with the magnitude of what Jesus had ordained to accomplish through Peter? When you find yourself face to face with the depth of your own failure to follow Christ well, there are two things you need to reckon with. A, your assessment of yourself is correct. And B, that correct assessment of you graciously clears the way for a right assessment of Christ. The other day before I had my coffee, I poured a bunch of cornflakes into a bowl and then I grabbed the milk out of the refrigerator and proceeded to pour 
orange juice all over my cornflakes. I grabbed the wrong carton. And since I really don't like orange juice-saturated cornflakes, guess what I did? I turned on the faucet, I flipped the switch on the, the disposal, and I poured that whole bowl of cornflakes right down the drain and started over. You know what God does with his children when we get full of ourselves? He turns us upside down and pours us out until we're not in the bowl. And then he fills the bowl with himself. He breaks us of our self-dependence in all of its ugly manifestations. Not just once, but over and over and over. Just like he did with these men whom he dearly loved And you know what? That is not God being mean. That is not God shutting us down. That is God being exceedingly gracious. That's God making us useful. The other gospel accounts tell us that there were just a few more words that Jesus spoke to these disciples once they reached the garden where he would be arrested. As Jesus went aside to pray the most agonizing prayer of his earthly life, He first parked most of the disciples in one spot, probably right at the entrance to the garden, and then he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he set them down close to where he would be praying, and he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. But instead of keeping watch, they all fell asleep. Not just once. Jesus stopped praying long enough to startle these guys out of their happy slumber. Not once, not twice, but three times. They were the worst sentries in the history of the world. And the third time he awakened them, Judas and the mob was right at the threshold of the garden. They had failed. And they were supposed to. Have you ever been so overwhelmed by your own failure to follow Christ well that you wonder if there's even any point to trying to keep that assignment any longer? I know that some of you have come to that point because I've talked to you about it. Well, how would you feel about your sufficiency to honor the highest of all callings, the calling to follow Christ, If you had been with Jesus pretty much every hour of every day for three years, you had seen all of His miracles firsthand, you had heard all of His teaching with your own ears, and then in the final hours of His time with you, when He told you He was about to go to His death, every word you uttered to assert your understanding of His agenda, your faith in Him, and your devotion to Him was met with proof that your words were hollow. Proof that your understanding was laughably misguided, your faith was embarrassingly feeble, and your courage was non-existent. That's what happened on the night of Jesus' death. Brothers and sisters, however badly you have done in your efforts to follow Christ well, you're going to have a hard time matching the miserable failure of these 11 men on that particular night. And you know why that matters so much? It matters because Jesus had very graciously set the stage for that miserable failure 
on that momentous night. It matters because what Jesus did with these 11 men whom he loved to the uttermost, he is committed to doing with you. God is bent on breaking us of our trust in and our dependence on anything that is even remotely about us. Because, brothers and sisters, we cannot be looking at us and looking at Jesus at the same time. Did you know that God is bent even on breaking us of our faith in our faith? I've talked to more than just a few brothers and sisters, even in the last few weeks, who feel crushed by the failure of their own faith. They haven't turned away from Christ. They haven't denied Christ. They believe that He is all that He claims to be. They are convinced that His death in their place is their only salvation but they see a chronic failure in their faith day by day and it devastates them. They feel the stinging rebuke of the Spirit of Christ within them. They feel His disappointment just like the disciples felt His disappointment the first and second and third time He awakened them in the garden. Just like Peter felt His disappointment when he realized He had denied Christ over and over to protect His own hide. Just like these disciples felt His disappointment when they realized that His prophecy of their abandonment of Him had come true. You and I feel over and over the stinging rebuke of the Spirit because of the feebleness of our understanding, the littleness of our faith, and the shallowness of our faithfulness. But beloved, beloved, the victory over our failures comes not when we conquer those failures, but when those failures drive us to the One who has. When Jesus over and over blew away every confidence that these men had placed in their own understanding, their own faith, and their own resolve, He did not do it to defeat them. His purpose was exactly the opposite. He loved these men with a love unlike anything that they had ever known. And He was going to turn the world upside down through them. His purpose was not to defeat them. His purpose was to encourage them. There should be a dash there. To encourage them and to give them peace. To impart true and enduring courage for the work that He would leave them here to do and to give them peace in the doing of it. See, that courage and that peace would only come when they learned that their usefulness to Him had nothing whatsoever to do with their own sufficiency. There's only one reason that I'm standing here. And it's 2 Corinthians 3, verses 5 and 6. And this verse has driven everything that I have done that has anything to do with ministry ever since I was 16 years old. We are not adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God who made us adequate as servants of the new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Which of these two statements gives you peace and courage? 
A, your usefulness to God depends on the quality of your understanding, your faith, and your devotion. Or B, your usefulness to God depends on the quality of Christ's understanding, Christ's faithfulness, and Christ's devotion. Is it A or B? Verse 33, the last two sentences that Jesus spoke to these disciples before his death that John saw fit to record are profoundly important. The first sentence is, these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. Now, I don't know about you guys, but if I had given up my job and left my family behind and spent three years following Jesus, and then he told me I was going to bail out on him in his hour of greatest suffering, And then the very next words out of his mouth were, these things I have spoken to you that you may have peace. I think my response would have been, Lord, you got a funny way of thinking about peace. Because i got to tell you, finding out that I'm going to deny you, that I'm going to abandon you, walk away from you tonight, that doesn't give me peace. Notice Jesus does not say, When you go from cowardly doubt to courageous faith, then you'll have peace. He does not say, fix your faith and muster up your courage, and once you've graduated from being spineless wimps to being heroes of the faith, then you'll have peace. It's not what he says. Some people preach this passage as if it is a parting exhortation to the disciples to to have better faith and greater courage. So they say things to their congregations like, your faith is not real until it's courageous faith. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Having just told them they were all about to scatter and abandon him, he says, these things I have spoken to you that in me, in me, you may have peace. And then the next words out of his mouth are, in the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. In me is your peace. Not in you. Not in you. I have overcome the world. Not you. See, until we have the roles straight, our efforts to follow Christ will produce nothing but anxiety and discouragement. And I know lots and lots of Christians who see the Christian life as that burden. And that's not what the Christian life is. When we do have the roles straight, we will have peace and courage in following Christ. So in this final hour before his arrest, Jesus was setting the roles straight for his disciples. He was making it very clear that it was all about him and not about them. If we do not get that, we will completely miss what I believe is the single most critical thing that Jesus said to these 11 men and to you and me in the entire upper room discourse. And that immeasurably critical declaration is that none of this depends on you. You might be thinking, yeah, but what about the verse in 1 John that says, here's the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. So in order to overcome the world, I just need to have great faith. There's the answer. No. 
To overcome the world, you have to trust in the only one in existence who has overcome the world. See, that's what faith is. There is a serious problem with much, much of our thinking about the nature of faith. We twist the very definition of faith in a way that makes our faith the object of our faith. Far too many Christians are crippled by the pursuit of a positive answer to a question that cannot be answered positively. And that question is, can I trust my faith? Is my faith worthy of my faith? Beloved, that's the wrong question. The answer to that question will always be an emphatic no. Your faith is not worthy of your faith. The only one who is worthy of your faith is your Savior. Even a measly little mustard seed of faith that is rightly placed in the person and saving work of Jesus Christ finds itself so utterly consumed with the worthiness of its object, Jesus, that it has no room for pondering the worthiness of itself. I posted some thoughts about this on Facebook earlier this week and my brother Mitch Goins replied with a, with a post I'll never forget. He said, he said, I like John Calvin's metaphor for saving faith, an empty vessel. Intrinsically, it has no value. It is simply a means by which we take hold of Christ. And there's the value. He said, I doubted my salvation for years until I read this in Calvin's Institutes and it freed me. For too long I obsessed over whether or not my faith was sufficient, but God graciously freed me from this striving by helping me turn my eyes away from myself and to Christ. And then he wrote another little metaphor that he had learned from someone else. True saving faith is like the eye. It never sees itself. After Jesus told Peter that his confidence in his own bravery and devotion was completely misplaced, That in fact, Peter would deny him three times before sunrise. The very next words out of Jesus' mouth were these. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Trust me, not you. See, Christ's solution always was, look here. Trust me. Looking at you looking at everything around you, looking at the wind and the water, looking at the enemy. None of that's going to fix your shortcomings. Just look at me. Trust me. Paul says, I know I quote this verse all the time. It's just, I, can't, I can't put it out of my head. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live but Christ lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh I live how? By faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered Himself up for me. It's just Him. You and I have a supernatural calling, beloved. There is nothing about it that we can do. God has to do it all. That's not let go and let God. That's get with the program by trusting God. Step into the task with both feet because you got nothing to worry about. It it all depends on Him. 
As God's agents in the world, you and I are just instruments. What does it take for an instrument to play a beautiful song? It takes a musician. One of my favorite guitarists is Tommy Emmanuel. A couple of years ago, I, I saw watched this video. It was at some kind of music festival, and Tommy was walking through a hallway to get to his venue, and there were lots of guitarists in the mix, and there was this one little boy, he's probably 13, 14 years old, and he was holding his guitar. And the guitar was kind of banged up. It clearly wasn't worth a whole lot. But Tommy stopped and he greeted the boy and he, he said, can I check out your guitar? And of course the boy was just elated and he handed him the guitar. And Tommy takes the guitar and he pulls a file out of his pocket. How many of you carry a file in your pocket? He pulls a file out of one pocket. He pulls a, a multi-tool kind of pocket knife with a screwdriver on out of the other pocket and he loosens the strings and he files a little here and there on the nut that holds the strings at the top and then he adjusts the bridge some and then he tightens up the strings again in about three minutes. He's done an overhaul on this guitar and then he, he plays this spectacular song. And the boy's just standing there with his jaw dropped. If you could personify that guitar, what that guitar did, that's faith. Faith says, Lord, I'm a mess. I'm all banged up. I'm not worth much at all. But if you take me into your hands and you make me what you want me to be, and if you just play me, the song will be beautiful because of you, not because of me. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not, that He might nullify the things that are, that no man should boast before God. And then listen to the last two verses of 1 Corinthians 1. But by His doing, by His doing, you are in Christ who has become to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification that as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. How much of that is about us? See, that's what faith does. It just boasts in the Lord. I'm going to quit by reading a paragraph that I read to you a little earlier in our study of John. It's from Bo Geertz's exceptional book, The Hammer of God. As I read it, when you hear the phrase, the way of obedience, think the way of obedience-based godliness, because that's what he means by that phrase. Here's the quote. The way of obedience leads to the foot of the cross. There one stands a poor wretch like Peter on that first Good Friday, full of shame and despair, looking upon his crucified Savior whom he had been unable to follow. There it becomes apparent that the Lord's best disciples are unworthy of him. 
They are all betrayers and deniers, sharing in the guilt of his death. But there at the cross, it also becomes evident that the Lord himself makes atonement for their sins. Where the way of obedience ends at Golgotha with judgment upon us. Everyone who believes may nevertheless stand on this rock of atonement because there, there, the way of grace begins. The new and holy way through the veil. The way that is sanctified by His blood. The way of grace has Jesus as its entire and only focus from beginning to end. Brothers and sisters, the way of grace is not more of Him and less of us. The way of grace is all of Him and none of us. Dear Father, we can never look rightly at Jesus and at ourselves without all of our trust being turned right back to Him. Break us of us. Break us of ourselves. Turn our eyes upon Jesus and upon Him only. Take us into Your hands and play Your beautiful song through us. We ask it in Jesus' amazing, incomparable name. Amen.